Well, good morning. Uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 14, verses 66 through 72. That is Mark 14, 66 through 72. Uh, we're continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark. We have some visitors here today. I'm very glad to see you guys. Um, very glad. Uh, but again, we're in our study of the Gospel of Mark, and this morning we come to Mark's account of Peter's denial of Christ. Uh, this is not uh, an incredibly happy passage. Last week, we saw our Lord Jesus on trial before the Sanhedrin. And we saw how his trial was a great miscarriage of justice. We saw how he was mistreated, and we saw how he suffered all of this for our sake, as we confess, for us and for our salvation. But now we turn to another trial that also took place that night, the trial of the Apostle Peter. Now, Peter wasn't tried before any formal court. Um, he, he, wasn't, uh, he did not stand before religious rulers or civil rulers. No, he stood before a servant girl and some bystanders in the courtyard of the high priest's home. And there he was put on trial, so to speak, for being a disciple. The accusation brought against him was this. You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. He was accused of being a follower of Christ. And Peter fought this accusation tooth and nail. He denied it. On three separate occasions that night, he denied it. Peter was tempted, and he failed. He failed miserably, and as we will read, he was found unfaithful to the Lord. Truly, if I could say this briefly, this passage, the, the whole bit, starting with uh, Christ being brought to the high priest's chambers. This passage is a contrast between the faithful and true witness, Jesus Christ, and the faithless witness, Peter. In the face of certain death, our Lord told the truth about himself and refused to deny his identity. Peter, on the other hand, denied Christ instead of suffering with him. But brothers and sisters, our Lord gave us this record in Scripture for our benefit. He gave it to us so that we would see ourselves in Peter to some degree and be on guard against sin. A, a brief thing real quick. When you read the Bible and you see someone really failing, you are not the hero. You should usually identify with that man. Um, so whenever you see Peter here, don't be too harsh on him because Peter actually reveals something about yourself. Remember that as you read scripture, rarely, if ever, are you the hero in the text. You're the failure. Christ is the hero. But God gave us this text so that we would see ourselves in Peter to some degree and be on guard against sin and unfaithfulness. And he also gave us this text as a reminder of the great love of Christ toward his straying sheep. And I'm excited to get to that portion toward the end. So as I preach today, I hope to be helpful. I hope to help you search your hearts a bit and think on how and why we deny Christ at times or are at least tempted to. I hope to, by the truth of the word of God, show you the shamefulness and foolishness of denying Christ, and in doing so, provide a deterrent to future unfaithfulness. And I hope to teach you from Peter's failure a couple of lessons about mercy. Mercy both from Christ and mercy that we should exercise toward one another. May God help us this morning to profit from the preaching of the word of God. So with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Mark chapter 14, verses 66 through 72. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of God. Let's pray. 
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of sitting under the ministry of your word. God, please reveal yourself to us this morning through the preaching of the word of God. By your spirit, do great things in us. Reveal our sin, rebuke us, grant us repentance, exhort us, encourage us, and show us our Savior, your Son. Let us leave here this morning saying, surely God met with us today at his word. Surely God has been in this place. Bless us, teach us, and sanctify us. Glorify yourself in us by your word and spirit. We ask for these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So on this very same night, our Lord had given a prophecy about his disciples. I want to mention this by way of reminder to get the context. In verses 26 through 31 of this chapter, Jesus told his disciples, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But Peter denied that he would be unfaithful to Jesus. He said, Even though they all fall away, I will not. They might, but I won't. And our Lord responded to Peter, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But again, Peter denied that it would happen. And in his proud arrogance, he said, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. Our Lord had foretold what Peter would do, infallibly. Peter was going to deny him. But before the rooster crowed twice, Peter would deny him on three separate occasions. Before the morning came, Peter would publicly disown Christ. But he was so self-assured and, and believed in himself so much that he thought that he would never do so. We fast forward to verse 54, and we read of how after Jesus was arrested, and all the disciples had scattered, including Peter, we read that Peter followed the crowd, the crowd of guards with Christ, to see what would become of him. Mark writes in verse 54, And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Before we're too harsh on the apostle, you got to give him credit here. He followed Jesus to his trial. He followed him. Some people, some commentators actually kind of rebuke Peter for this. He followed at a distance. It's amazing that he followed at all. Um, others will say he, he, he put himself in the doorway of temptation by going to the, to the courtyard of the high priest. No, he loved his Lord, and so he followed him. Let's give Peter some credit here. I'm not sure many of us would have followed him into the courtyard of the high priest. This is evidence that he loved Jesus. So here Peter sits near a fire. Uh, the text in, in Greek says light. He sat near the light. So the fire is casting light on his face as he's warming himself in the cold night. He's among the guards, probably near some of the men who arrested Jesus. Uh, but he's gone unnoticed so far, apparently. But that doesn't last for very long because verse 66 picks up right where verse 54 left off. And it seems that Mark wants us to understand that as Jesus is on trial in the upper part of the high priest's house, that Peter is on trial at the same time. So it, very much these things could be happening at the same time. Mark tells us that a servant girl of the high priest comes to Peter as he sits by the fire and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. She recognized him. And she says, you're one of his disciples. I've seen you. You were with him. Now, I doubt that she was in the Garden of Gethsemane that evening. It's more likely that she had seen Jesus and his disciples in the temple that week. Very public, in the court of the Gentiles, any of the Jews could have come there, including Jewish women. She probably had been there. No doubt she's heard about Jesus and his disciples. She is a servant girl of the high priest who hates Jesus. No doubt she's heard about them. She's probably been to the temple, and wherever Jesus was, Peter was there too. She recognized him as a disciple, but Peter denies it. I just want to retell this, this passage before we get into some things. Verse 68, he says, or says, but he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. This is emphatic. This is emphatic from Peter here. He's saying he has no knowledge of Jesus in any way, whether practical or theoretical. I neither know nor understand what you mean. This question, he's trying to say, this question is nonsensical. I don't know this guy. I, I don't even understand why you would ask me that. At the first question. At the first question, Peter denies knowing Jesus. Some commentators have said this, at the first temptation, the rock crumbled. Peter's name, Rock, 
the rock crumbles. A lowly servant girl makes him crumble immediately. And he tries to distance himself from the Lord. And then he, and then he kind of tries to run away. He's by the fire. She says, you're one of his disciples. And he goes out into the gateway, is what Mark says. He's trying to get away from this girl. And at that time, the rooster crows the first. Apparently, Peter didn't think anything of the rooster crowing. He was trying to get away and conceal himself. And he didn't pause yet to remember the words of Christ. But the girl finds him again. And she begins to say some people standing nearby in the gateway, some of the bystanders, this man is one of them. One of what? One of his disciples. This is one of the men who was with Jesus. But again, Peter denies it. He doesn't want to be associated with Jesus at all. And uh, some people argue from from the verb tense here, he denied it, is that he denies it and continues to deny it. It's emphatic. I'm not one of them. I don't know why you would say that. I'm not one of his disciples. I don't know who he is. He's just going on and on, continually denying that he knows Jesus. Mark then tells us that some time passes, possibly an hour or so. And then the bystanders, the, the servant girl is gone. The bystanders she was talking to approach Peter. And they say, certainly you are one of them. How do they know? For you are a Galilean. Peter's been talking a lot. And Peter has an accent. His accent gave him away. They could tell by the way that he talked that he was not from Jerusalem. This is kind of like whenever you go out somewhere and you meet a guy from Boston. And you go, he's not from Ohio. It's probably something along those lines. His, his accent gave him away. And everyone knew that Jesus and his disciples were from the region of Galilee. So it's not hard for them to put it all together. Jesus has been arrested and is now in the home of the high priest on trial. And now some guy is here in the courtyard and he sounds like a Galilean. He must be a disciple. Surely you're one of his disciples. You're a Galilean. And at this point, Peter seems to become unhinged. In verse 71, we read, But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. He invokes a curse on himself. He's saying something, may God strike me down if I'm lying. And it says he begins to curse. Maybe he's, he's cursing the people around him. I don't mean using profanities, but may God strike me down. I invoke a curse on myself and begin to swear. And may God strike you if you ask me again. I'm not one of his disciples. Think about that for a moment. God, Peter calls upon God to curse him if he's lying, and then he lies about his relationship to Jesus. This is walking away from the notes. How merciful is God that he didn't kill Peter right there? God is merciful. But Peter lies about his relationship to Christ. This is madness. Peter wants out. He wants out. He wants nothing to do with Jesus in this moment. And notice how much he's trying to distance himself from Jesus. He won't even use his name. This man. I don't even, I don't know this man of whom you speak. He wants these people to leave him alone. He does not want to be affiliated with Christ. And so before men, Peter publicly disowns Jesus in the strongest terms that he can. And then the rooster crows the second time. And Peter remembered that the Lord had said, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Peter had done it. Exactly how Christ said he would do. He disowned Jesus. He proved himself a coward. He proved to be unfaithful in the moment of testing. And then he began to weep. He began to weep bitterly, sobbing and crying at what he had done. And one way, uh, the ESV has a little note here in your Bibles at the bottom of the page. One way that you can render verse 72, a legitimate way to translate it from the Greek, is, and when he had thought about it, he wept. When he had thought about it, he wept. It's actually how the King James Version renders it, and I think it's, it might be better here. When he had thought about it, he wept. When he had a moment to consider that he had denied the precious Lord Jesus, he couldn't control himself anymore, and he wept tears of sorrow and, I believe, tears of repentance. Our brother Peter denied Christ. But let's be clear. Let's be clear here. Some people, some people are too flippant when they deal with Peter in this passage. Peter is our brother and he denied Jesus in a moment of weakness. It was not premeditated. It was not born from malice toward the Lord. Peter is not Judas. Some people will say we see Judas betrayed Christ, and Peter 
similarly betrayed Christ. And I understand the parallel that they're making because in some degree they both sold him out, but Peter's was not premeditated. This was a moment of weakness from Peter. This was unpreparedness from Peter. Jesus said, watch and pray, and Peter slept. This was unpreparedness for the trial. Peter loved the Lord. We'll see more of that later. But let's maybe be a bit sympathetic toward him. I'm not making excuses, but let's, let's look at the situation. Peter is facing almost certain arrest and death if he would have admitted, admitted to being a disciple of Christ. Some people say, no, they didn't really care. They only wanted Jesus. Remember the young man who ran away naked in Mark's gospel? Why did he run away naked? Because they tried to grab him to arrest him. They didn't even know who he was. As far as we know, he wasn't even a disciple of Christ. How much more would they have went after Peter who just struck off the servant of the high priest's ear? He doesn't want to be arrested. Don't be too harsh with Peter. We have often denied Jesus in much less dire circumstances. But there's no getting around it. What Peter did here is detestable and shameful and wicked. It is. He blasphemed Christ. He denied our Lord before men. He was ashamed of the Son of God. Now, brothers and sisters, God did not have this passage recorded for us so that we could simply say, as we do often when we read narratives, yep, Peter sure denied Jesus, and he turned the page and move on to the next chapter. That's, that's not why it's here. We're meant to think. As Paul says, what's written down is for our benefit. What's written down is for our benefit. And I believe this text is here to cause us to meditate upon our own temptations to deny Christ. And I also think it's here to teach us a couple of lessons about mercy as well. So let's first think on what it means to deny Christ and the ways that we do it and the reasons that we're tempted to do it. And I'm going to tell you ahead of time, I'm not trying to guilt anyone as we go through this, but we need to think on these things because we're often guilty of them. So this is not going to be happy, at least not the first half. Just wait, though, because the gospel is the balm to all of our wounds that the law inflicts upon us. So hang in there with me and take these things to heart. First, what does it mean to deny Jesus? Well, first, let me say that we shouldn't be so narrow in our thinking as to believe that denying Jesus is only verbally saying, I don't know him. Or verbally saying, I'm not a disciple. It's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. That's just the most blatant, explicit, and grievous example of denying Christ. But I think what we can do is we can, we can look uh, and take some principles from Peter's denial and apply them broadly. First, I, I think it's quite clear that Peter means to disown Christ. That's what it is to deny him, to disown him. That's what Peter did. To reject or disavow him, to uh, attempt to cut ties with him in some way. And not just his person, but anything about him, really, or anything that he said. And I say that because you don't, you don't separate Christ's example in living or his word from his person. So it's to try to cut ties with anything about him. We also see in this text that Peter is ashamed of Christ. Or to put it another way, he was embarrassed by Christ. And you say, why would you ever be embarrassed by Christ? How would you feel if one of your dearest friends was on trial and arrested and everyone's against him? You don't want to be associated with that person in that moment. Even if you think he's innocent. Ah, I don't really know if I want people to say my name and his name in the same sentence. He's embarrassed by Christ. He was reluctant and unwilling to affiliate himself with Christ because Christ was in chains and on trial. Again, embarrassed of the Lord. To be embarrassed of Christ is a form of denying him. To deny Christ is to shrink back from owning him as your Lord. It's to cower back from being known as one of his people. It's to shrink back from agreeing with him on what he's said. It's to walk away from obeying him as the Lord. It's to refuse to declare his person and majesty to the world. To sum it up, and me and Pastor Steve briefly talked about this. He thought this was a fair way of putting it. To, to sum it up in the most simple and short way possible that I hope will stick with you beyond this morning. I think it's fair to say this. To deny Jesus is to distance yourself from him in some way. It is to distance yourself from him in some way. And though this can be done privately, you can do this behind closed doors in private sin, you can do this in your heart. Um, though it can be done privately, I'm primarily thinking 
uh, of a public denial of Christ, since that's what we see from Peter in the text. So I want, I want to stick with that. And remember this, you say, what's public? Just one other person present makes it public. How did Peter's denial start? Just a servant girl there. So public means just one other person's there with you. So what are some of the ways that we deny Jesus? What are some of the ways that we attempt to distance ourselves from him? And I want to be clear, I'm just going to give some examples and let the Spirit of God do the rest as you meditate on this later. This is by no means exhaustive. These are just some examples that came to my mind this week. Uh, First, one of the ways that we try to distance ourselves from Christ is by being silent when we ought to speak. When those around us are speaking about moral issues and ethics, and we know what the Word of God says about the issue, and we keep silent when it's our turn to speak, we are distancing ourselves from the teacher. When, when people are giving their religious opinions and you know that they're wrong, but you refuse to open your mouth about the faith, you're distancing yourself from the Savior. Right? Well, I think, you know, if you're just a decent person, like, God will, God will let you in. And you just be quiet. You're distancing yourself from the Savior. When everyone around you is talking about how great and fun and pleasurable some sin is, and when it's your turn to speak, you say nothing about it being a hateful thing in the eyes of God, you're distancing yourself from the Holy One. When you're around unbelievers day in and day out and never open your mouth to tell them the way of salvation through faith in Jesus, you are distancing yourself from the crucified Messiah. Now, the reason I'm saying that these are ways that we distance ourselves from Christ is because I know why we generally don't open our mouths. I know know why. It's because we don't want the confrontation. We don't want the confrontation. We don't want to be labeled uh, as a religious extremist. That's a fun one. You don't want to be labeled a religious extremist or a zealot or a fundy or a bigot or whatever the slur of the day might be. We don't want to suffer ridicule or ostracism and that's why the vast majority of the time we say nothing brothers and sisters when when you will open your mouth to talk about anything except the faith you are denying christ and and let me be let me be clear here i know some of you are just kind of quiet and some of you maybe haven't been christians very long you say i don't really know what to say not talking about you necessarily right now although for those of you who are just naturally quiet you need to find your voice But hear me, when you will open your mouth to talk about anything except the Lord, you are denying him. When you'll talk about sports, politics, by the way, the fact that Christians will talk about politics and not care to give offense, but then will not talk about Christ and eternal things because they don't want to give offense, makes no sense. But when when, when we'll talk about sports and politics and the news, local situations, family issues, work, and everything else, but then the opportunity arises to talk about eternal things and you remain silent, you're doing it because you don't want to be associated with Christ for some reason or another. There, There are very few exceptions to this. There may be some exceptions. I'm not talking about them. Just stay with me here. There may be some exceptions to this, but there are very few. You are afraid of being counted as one of his disciples. You're afraid, let's put it this way, you're afraid to suffer for Christ's sake. And so you distance yourself from him by remaining silent. I want to be clear about something. I want to make a clarification. I'm not telling you to go around and be an insufferable Christian. I've met them. I've been one. I kind of am one sometimes. I'm not telling you to be obnoxious about the faith. That's not what I'm telling you. I'm not telling you to daily force people into conversations that they flatly don't want to have. And they tell you, I don't want to talk to you about that. And you just keep following them around the store. I'm not telling you to do that. But please hear me. When it's naturally your turn to speak and you remain silent, it is a silent denial of Christ. Another way, and I won't spend as much time on all of these, but that one I think needs to be said the most to us. So often we're silent. We'll talk about anything but him. God forgive us. Another way that we try to distance ourselves from Christ is by winking at sin. It's a puritanical way of saying it. You, you just kind of like shrug your shoulders and act like it's not that big of a deal. You wink at it like it's a light thing. 
When we're around unbelievers who are talking and making jokes about the sin that they love to commit, how often do we laugh and joke with them and make the sin out to be a light thing? And we know it's wrong. We know that they shouldn't do it. Later, maybe in the car on the drive home from work or whatever, like you, you, you feel the guilt. I, I shouldn't have laughed with them at that. What they're doing is evil. After all, this, this is the sin that we're making light of is the sin that's going to damn them for all eternity. It's also the same kinds of sin that our Lord went to a cross over. And yet, we wink at it and we play it off as if it's not a big deal. And in doing so, we make ourselves indistinct from the world and we distance ourselves from the Lord. A third way that we distance ourselves from Christ is by disobeying him, by sinning, in order to make others comfortable and keep ourselves from standing out. We, we do as they do. And maybe they're what we would call lesser sins. And if in the words of Charles Spurgeon, if they're lesser sins, then give them up. But we, we, we commit maybe lesser sins to keep things comfortable so that we can go with the flow. Right, like you sit down and watch a movie with a group that you know is going to be trash because you've heard about it already. Instead of saying, there's nothing there for me, guys. I can't watch that with you. But you sit down anyway. You don't want to rock the boat. So you go with the flow. Or this, and this is one that happens. I've been tempted to this. You go out and you break the Sabbath instead of saying, it's the Lord's Day and I can't go, guys. I can't do it. Maybe some other time today belongs to Christ. Why? Because you, you don't want to rock the boat on that. It's easier to be silent and go than to have a conversation. Maybe it's with your fellow Christian. You don't want to offend them. You joke and speak as they do in order to fit in instead of drawing lines against perverse speech. You want so much, as I've already said, you want so much uh, to not rock the boat that you will violate the laws of Christ in order to keep the peace A final example for this morning of ways that we distance ourselves from Christ is by being embarrassed of a single word of the Bible. The Bible is the word of Christ. Christ is God, and the Bible is God's word. So the Bible is the word of Christ. And yet, how often are we sheepish when questioned about the teachings of Scripture? Let me give you one. An unbeliever walks up to you and says, Does your God condone slavery? And, uh, um, when you should say, in some circumstances, yes. And he governed it under the old covenant. Is it ideal? No, but he did permit it. Yeah, say that in public. Does it, is God okay with killing gay people? God was at one time commanding the civil magistrate, the, the, the civil uh, rulers to execute people who practice homosexuality. Yes, he did command that. Now, whether or not another nation now under the age of the new covenant has to enact that law is a separate question, but God absolutely did command that, and it was a righteous law. How many Christians won't say that in public? That's, a, that's denying Christ to wish that certain things weren't in the Bible. And so when asked, we hem and haul around those things. We don't want them to be there. This is being ashamed of our Lord because we're ashamed of what he said. And by the way, I only use those two examples because those are the two that a lot of Christians just don't like to frank. They just don't want to answer straight up. To be ashamed of the Bible is to be ashamed of Christ. Now, having considered some of the ways that we're tempted to deny Christ, let's consider why. Why are we tempted to do so? Why do we distance ourselves from Christ before men? And again, this is not an exhaustive list. These are just some things to think on. And, and I want to know, I'm going to say you. It's me too. I had to write it first. I was writing it to myself. And now it's to you. First, and this may be the biggest one at root, why, why, do we, why are we tempted to deny Christ? Here's the first. We love ourselves more than we love Christ. We love our comfort, our ease, our reputation, our lives more than we love Jesus. And we prove that because we don't want those things disrupted. We, do, we don't want to risk anything in our lives for Christ's sake. Why? Because we value that more than Christ. When we remain silent and refuse to live openly in every way as a disciple, we are not loving Jesus the way that we should. We're saying something is greater than he. 
We're saying that something has our, we're not saying, we're, we're proving that at least at that time, something has our affection more than the Lord Jesus. And usually what has our affection is our ease of life. Brothers and sisters, we love ourselves too much and we love Christ too little. And that's why we try to downplay our religion before men. We're not consumed with love for Christ. Second, we fear men more than we fear God. We fear the opinion of the sinners around us more than the opinion of Almighty God. And we care more what men think of us than what God thinks of us. We, to, to paraphrase Albert Martin, we desire the smile of men more than the smile of God. We, we want acceptance with men more than to hear well done from our Lord. Or we, we fear what they might do or say to us or to our reputations more than we fear the God who can cast both body and soul into hell. We fear men too much and we fear God too little. A third reason that we're tempted to deny Christ is that we're, to sound like a Puritan, we're addicted to the world. We're addicted to the world. We're too focused on right now. We've lost an eternal perspective. We, we live too much for today and not enough for 10,000 years from now. We don't give enough thought to the glories of heaven for the faithful and the horrors of hell for those who die apart from Christ. And so we focus on the applause of men rather than the eternal glory that awaits us who remain faithful to the end. We focus on the temporary cost of public discipleship more than the eternal rewards that Christ promises to faithful stewards. Brothers and sisters, we are so often so focused on earth that we forget the unspeakable joy and reward, what Paul calls the weight of glory that makes everything in this world look like dust on a scale. And so we deny Christ publicly and we trade treasure for trinkets. Lastly, the reason why we are tempted to deny Christ is unbelief. It's unbelief. In the moment, I'm not, I'm not talking about your whole life, Christian. I don't want to be that harsh. But in the moment, when we try to downplay our relationship to Christ, we are showing that at root, we don't believe that he is better than whatever the world is offering. We aren't prizing him the way we should because we, in that moment, are not viewing him. We're not viewing him rightly. We're not believing that he's the treasure in the field, that you sell everything that you might have it. We're not believing it. When we deny Christ, we're showing that we don't believe he's better in that moment. We don't believe that he's worthy of our suffering in that moment. We're showing that we don't believe that he is glorious beyond all imagination. And we're showing that we've become temporarily blind to his worth through unbelief. Now, brothers and sisters, allow me to pour shame and contempt upon all of this. Now, let, 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 me, let me try to show you how foolish and shameful that those reasons to deny Christ really are. And what I'm about to say is not meant to be a, a drive-by guilt session, right? Rather, meditating on these things are great deterrents to unfaithfulness. If we take uh, the things that I'm going to say, I think if we take them to heart, we will be guarded against unfaithfulness in the future. First, brothers and sisters, consider his love for you. Oh, this isn't Sunday school stuff. This is Christianity. His love for you. He died for you. He loved you and gave himself up for you. He lowered himself beyond low. God became a man. He took on flesh and humbled himself beyond all imagination and came to earth for the express purpose of suffering the wrath of God on a cross for you. He took your sin on himself and offered his life for yours as a substitutionary sacrifice for your sin. The Son of Man came and gave himself as a ransom for you so that you might go free, so that you might have acceptance with God, so that you, the sinner who had sinned against Christ, might be pardoned in him. He died so that you might live eternally. And would you prize something over him? God help us. Would you love yourself 
more than the one who died to save your soul? Would you love yourself more than the Jesus who loved you beyond all imagination, more than you would have dare ever asked him to love you? Would you value your comfort and your friendships and your ease and your social standing more than him? Perish the thought. Perish the thought. There is only one person who died to save you. Love him. Above all things, love him and make yourself known as his. Second thing, to pour contempt upon all of this. Consider Christ's authority over you. Consider his authority over you and over those that you are trying to gain favor with by denying him. Does that make sense? Does it, does it make sense to try to gain favor with those who will stand before Jesus in judgment? Does it, let me flesh this out some more. Does it make sense to sacrifice faithfulness to the one before whom all men will give an account in order to gain approval from those very men who will stand before the one that you're denying? Does that make sense? No. That makes no sense. To distance yourself from the king in order to gain favor with peasants who will one day have to answer to that king is absolute madness. It's foolish. There will be no insurrection. Why are you trying to match up with the peasants at the expense of, of, of faithfulness to the king? It's lunacy. You're trying to gain favor with them as if they were above Christ, all the while knowing they will be judged by him. That is stupid. I don't have any other words for it. That's stupidity. I'm guilty of it myself. It's stupid. More than that, you yourself are acting as if you have authority to obey or disobey. Confess or not confess the one who's going to judge you as well. Such things are madness. And we need to recognize them as such. Third, consider the goodness and truthfulness of his word that you're ashamed of. The, this book is the book of books. This book that you are ashamed of in front of men is the book that told you of the Savior. It's the book that revealed the way of salvation to you through faith in Christ. This, this book, the, the words of Christ that you are ashamed of are the same words that instruct you in godly living. They're the same words that reveal the love of God for you. The words of Christ that you're ashamed of are, are, are the, the same words that you look to daily for comfort, correction, encouragement, and hope. And would you now, after cherishing the words of Christ and taking them in and letting them be balm to your soul in private, would you now deny those same words in front of men? That's hypocrisy. That's hypocrisy. That's despicable. Let me ask you this, just because my personality is kind of harsh. Do you have any better ideas than what the scriptures say? Are you wiser than God? Are your standards more pure? Are you more righteous than he? Are you more just than he? Are you more gracious than God? And yet by denying his word and attempting to distance yourself from it publicly, you are implying these things in some way. Why else would you distance yourself from Christ's word? It's shameful. And fourth, consider the reality of eternity. Dear Christian, Jesus has much glory and bliss in store for you at the end of this hard life. He has an eternity of splendor and perfection awaiting you, an eternity of joy and pleasure at his right hand forevermore for those who are faithful to him. He hasn't just saved you and now you don't have to go to hell and you just die neutral, but rather he saved you that you might spend an eternity with him. He's given us above and beyond anything we would have ever thought to ask from the God that we've sinned against. His kindness and grace toward us is unimaginable. The things he promises are beyond words. And would you deny then such a kind and rich Savior? Would you deny such a freely giving Lord? Brothers and sisters, it is a great and terrible sin to deny Christ in any way. It's, it's a shameful and detestable thing that we all ought to recognize as such. To distance ourselves from so great, kind, loving, wise, and sovereign a Savior as Jesus is madness. And yet we do it. 
And yet we do it. Uh, we, we are, I, I was going to say, I think we're all, no, I know we are all guilty of this on some level at some time or another. We are often unfaithful, we often prize things above Jesus, and we are often foolish and stupid and loveless for Christ. We are failures. Get comfortable with that. You're a failure. There's no denying it. We are bad disciples. But let me tell you now about the mercy of Christ. Our Lord never cast off Peter. Peter sinned horribly. He denied even knowing Jesus. He denied Christ in a more literal and grievous way than any of us ever have, I'm sure. I've mentioned lesser ways. He did the most explicit example. And yet our Lord did not finish with Peter that night, for our Lord is full of mercy toward his sinful sheep. See the grace of God towards Peter in verse 72. And he broke down and wept. Bitter tears of sorrow. Tears of repentance. And who grants repentance? God. God granted Peter repentance. Had God not granted Peter repentance, he could not have repented. Repentance is a gift. God was not done with Peter. God is faithful to his covenant. When he saves somebody, he promises to sustain them and keep them. God was not done with Peter. When Peter had thought about what he had done, how he had denied the master, how he had rejected the one who loved him, how he had been a coward and sold out the Son of God to keep himself from suffering, he wept bitter tears. Again, these are tears of repentance. Peter was from the heart sorry for his sin, and he turned back to the Lord. And though it's not shown here in our text, this is shown in gospel accounts after the resurrection of Jesus. Peter did not hide from Jesus, did he? Judas was sorry for what he did, and then he killed himself. He despaired of grace. Peter recognized what he did and he ran to the Lord. He went to the tomb to see it empty. He was there when Jesus appeared to his disciples. He went to Galilee and waited for Jesus. He leapt from the boat when he saw Jesus on the seashore at the end of John's gospel. Peter loved Jesus. He failed miserably, but he owned his sin and failure. He hated it. He hated himself for it. He repented of it, and he ran back to Christ. Peter, you could say this, Peter disowned his sin of disowning the Savior, and Jesus received him back. But let's be clear about something. It wasn't Peter's repentance that restored him. You think Peter was ever sorry enough for what he did? Oh, Peter was very sorry. Church tradition says that he couldn't hear a rooster crow without crying. I, I, I bet I know it's tradition. I just think that would be reasonable. Do you think he was ever sorry enough? Can you ever be sorry enough for sinning against the Holy Christ? Can you ever be sorry enough? No, he was not saved by his repentance. He was not forgiven because of his repentance. No one is ever sincere enough or sorry enough to merit forgiveness from Christ. No, Peter was received back by Christ because Christ loves to receive repentant sinners. That's why. It's not that he was sorry enough, but rather Jesus loved Peter. And so Jesus received his wandering sheep back into the fold. Look at the famous account in, in John 21, verses 15 through 17. I'll read it to you. When they had finished breakfast, this is after the resurrection. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. What we just read is the account of Jesus restoring Peter to apostleship. Jesus forgave Peter above and beyond what anyone could have expected. Jesus spoke peace to Peter and forgave him for it all. And did you notice how many times Jesus allowed Peter to affirm his love for him? Three times. One for every time that he had denied him. It's as if Jesus is saying, I know what you did, Peter, and I know it better than you, and I forgive you for it all. 
Do you hear that? Like Jesus forgives. Take heart, sinner. I'm talking to all of us. There is always mercy with Christ toward the sinner who repents. Even the one who formerly denied him is forgiven for it all. My, my dear friends, he is merciful toward us. He will receive us back. We need only repent and come back to him. He's never turned away anyone yet, and he never will. It is his joy to receive the repentant sinner. And I love this. Let me point something else, not just, from Mark, not just from John's gospel, but Mark's gospel. It's tucked in at the end. Most of us miss it. In Mark chapter 16, verse 7, the angel tells something to the women who came to the tomb. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Sorry. The angel singles out Peter. Tell the disciples and Peter in case he thinks he's not one of them anymore. Now angels are messengers of God. They do what they're told. They only say what they're told to say. Who do you think told him? Make sure Peter knows. Jesus, of course. Jesus wanted Peter to know that there was mercy for him. Jesus wanted Peter to know that though he had failed miserably, Jesus was still his savior and master and friend. Jesus had not given up on Peter. Jesus is faithful to his covenant. Jesus had died for his sins. Jesus had more grace than Peter could have ever realized. And so Jesus tells the angel, make sure Peter knows to come too. Praise God. It is my great joy to tell you this morning that Jesus wants you to know that there is mercy for you. His death is sufficient for all. His death is sufficient for all. Have you failed? There's mercy for you. Have you denied him? There's mercy for you. Have you sinned grievously in some way that I haven't mentioned this morning? I don't care. There's mercy for you. Repent and return to the Lord. He has more grace and mercy than you have sin. I promise you that because he has more grace and mercy than I have sin. He died to save sinners and it is his joy to receive those who come to him in repentance and faith. See that the mercy of Christ toward Peter is but an example of his mercy toward you. He forgives. He forgives. Behold your God. Is there any God in all the false religions of the world who so graciously receives sinners? Sure, there are some who have no standards and don't really care what you do, but a holy God that will receive you back? Behold your God. He loves you. And it's in light of the mercy of Christ toward Peter that we learn another lesson about the mercy that we should show toward one another. I know I've been up here for a while, but this must be said as well. Brothers and sisters, don't be too harsh with your fellow Christians when they're unfaithful. This especially needs to be said to Reformed people, in my experience. They may have fallen in a way that you wouldn't. They may be tempted in ways that don't tempt you, but you can fall and do fall as well. You need restored daily by Christ and you need loved by your fellow Christians. Peter reminds us that even a great saint can fall. He was an apostle. And you say, well, that was, that was you know, before uh, the, the Holy Spirit came upon them all at Pentecost. Peter needed checked again in the book of Galatians. Great saints can fall. So really, we shouldn't be too surprised when we see lesser men fall into sin. I'm not making excuses. I'm just, this is the reality of it. We all fall. We are all unfaithful at times. Great saints can fall and still need restored. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to be gentle and gracious toward one another and seek to help each other return to Christ. And, and, and please hear me. Peter really loved Jesus, and Peter really horribly sinned. But consider how Jesus greets the disciples when he first sees them. Peace. He doesn't grab their face and throw them into the dirt. He doesn't say, you. He comes in and he says, peace to you. Peace to the ones who had sinned against him personally and abandoned him. How much more should we be gracious and patient and kind towards our brothers and sisters when they fall? Please hear me especially if you're new to the Reformed tradition, don't assume somebody isn't a Christian just because they fall into sin. 
Peter was an apostle. Those who sincerely love Christ can lapse into sin. So don't be unmerciful. Love one another. Show grace to one another. Yes, correct one another, but do so in a spirit of gentleness and love like Christ showed Peter and like he shows you every day. Be merciful to each other, even as Christ is merciful to you. So for application, I'll be incredibly brief and, and then leave it to, to God to show you more than I can say. What do you do with this? Pray. I don't think that's not an application point. I'm not going to tell you to go out and do something. This is internal work here. The internal foundation must be laid if we're to be faithful externally and publicly. Pray. Pray that God would help you to love yourself less, to fear men less, and to love him more. Pray that the Lord would help you to focus on eternal things more than the things of this world. Pray for eyes to see more clearly the glories and worth of Christ. For eyes to see that he is better. That he is worth our faithfulness no matter what the cost is here. And then after you've prayed about those things, pray some more. Pray that God would prick your conscience when you deny him and bring you quickly to repentance. Pray that God would teach you to be merciful towards others. And pray that God would help you to see the riches of mercy in Christ Jesus. Pray. Pray about the things that you've heard today. That when the day comes, you might be faithful. Remember, Peter, Jesus told him, watch and pray. And he did not. Pray. And second, my favorite, rest. Rest. Know that Christ has more grace than you have sinned. Know that he loves to receive sinners that return to him. And rest in the knowledge that he will never cast you off, for he loves you. May God help us. And may God help us all to run to our merciful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our holy God, we thank you for this text of Scripture that speaks to us. That reveals our tendencies to sin, that reveals our unfaithfulness, but praise God, reveals our Savior who loves us. Oh God, we thank you for your mercy. We are so often unfaithful. Help us to focus on how much you love us, that we in turn might grow to love you more. That we might be faithful before men and say, I don't care what it costs me. I love him too much to deny him. Teach us and have mercy on us. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.